If you have a Bible, if you'll open it up to Galatians chapter 6. Students, I don't know if you completely understand that, but John and Trish were singing a prayer over you and a desire for your life as well. And we're so thankful for John and Trish Fletcher and their ministry with the students as well. I'm very, very proud of our graduating class. You guys have done an outstanding job uh, thus far. My, my biggest advice to you would be very simple, three things. One, number one, love God. Make that foundational to your life. Let your love of God shape your decisions. May you walk in wisdom because you have a love for God. Moving outward, may you love the one another's of your life, your family, your friends, those people that God brings across your path. May you love them. And then thirdly, may you love others. May your life not be wrapped up in selfishness, just thinking about yourself and what you can collect. But may you use your life in ways that truly impact uh, the world around you and show that you have a love for others. We're in this series right now called Finding Peace. And one of the things that we've been doing in this series is inviting people If you have a picture that resonates peace to you, submit it. You can email it to office at murphychurch.com. It needs to be something that either you took or somebody took of you. Uh, And Jay Horton submitted this picture. Uh, We pick one each week to be our sermon logo. And Jay is one of our deacons. He's yawning in this picture, and it's not because he's bored. It's because he's at one of the highest elevations in the world. He had just climbed Mount Kilimanjaro whenever that picture was taken, and as he looks back on that, it resonates peace to him, and I'm sure it resonates peace to you as well. Well, today, I want to talk to you on the subject of breaking free from your past. Breaking free from your past, and the truth is that we all have a past. What makes Christianity unique? What makes Christianity different than any other major world religion can be summed up in one word, and that word is grace. Christianity is grounded in the concept not of my goodness, but in this concept of God's greatness. In Islam, it's about raw obedience. Good behavior is rewarded. Bad works are punished. In the Eastern faiths, faiths such as Buddhism and Hinduism, etc., it's about sowing good karma. We, uh, they, they teach interconnectivity and focusing on your spirituality. And at the same time, there is a works-based mentality to it because you either have bad karma or good karma, and the way in which bad karma is overcome is by doing those things which are good. In the religion of humanism or secularism, and yes, I do believe that that has a, a religious feel to it. You say, but there's no deity within secularism. Well, there's other major world religions that don't have a deity per se, and yet they still teach a moral or ethic and a code by which to live, and the same thing can be true or can be said with humanism or secularism. But there the focus is on equality, living together as one. And bad behavior must be either uh, rehabilitated or it must be incarcerated. So Christianity is unique that anyone who is convicted of the Holy Spirit, who turns from sin and turns to Christ, can experience the grace of our God. Grace is not merely the front door of Christianity. Grace is the living room of Christianity. So in grace, 
I hold to this unwavering hope that anyone, whether they are young or whether they are old, whether they are rich or whether they are poor, whether they are light-skinned or dark-skinned, whether their life is Duggar-like or Bin Laden-like, anyone who calls on the name of Christ can break free from the past and live in grace. The Bible in Galatians 6 and verse 1, if you don't have your Bible with you, it will be on the screen behind me, but the Bible reads this way, Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each person should examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting in himself alone and not in respect to someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. The one who is taught the message must share all good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap corruption from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So we must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we must work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Now, I want to speak to you from this passage on four things to do when someone has messed up. And I want to come at it from two different directions today. One, I want to try to give you some thoughts, some scripture that can help you when you find yourself in a situation where you are helping others. But secondly, as we talk about these matters I think you'll find that many of them apply to your own life as well. So as we talk about how to help somebody uh, break free from their past, I think we can also learn how we ourselves can break free from our own past. Well, the first thought that I want you to zero in on is that we are to restore with a gentle spirit. When there is wrongdoing, at the heart of God is restoration. He desires to see the sinner restored, and the sinner restored with a gentle spirit. The Scriptures say, brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. Now, everybody in here, you may not realize this, but everybody in here has a conflict style. In everybody's life, we have conflict come across our path. And everybody has a natural style with which you deal with conflict. Some of you are conflict avoiders. You avoid conflict like the plague. Anybody ready to admit I'm a conflict avoider? A lot of us are, a lot of us are right there. When I was in college, I, I took a lot of counseling courses. I took a lot of psychology courses, and I thought I, I was going to do my bachelor's in pastoral ministries and then do my master's degree in counseling. And whenever I got 
further along in, in my bachelor's degree, we started having to do some real serious type counseling scenarios. And, and I realized that my ability to just sit there and listen to someone share their problems last about one cup of coffee. Uh, for one cup of coffee, I'm really good, man. I'm tuned in. I try to be helpful. But about the time that cup of coffee ends, you know, my eyes are rolling back in my head. And so, I, you know, I, I realize at that point that when it comes to conflict, I can engage in it. I can try to deal with it. But then pretty quickly, I want to I wanna get it solved and, and moved on. I, I want to I keep on going. I don't really like to, to have to wrestle too much with conflict. And a lot of you are exactly like me. You are a natural conflict avoider. Now, some of us are conflict accommodators. We, we make excuses for conflict, or maybe you're really good at nurturing conflicted people, and so there's a lot of troubled people in your life all the time, and you're like, I don't know why everybody just comes to me with their problems, but part of your natural style is that, that you uh, may accommodate it, or, or at best, you may nurture it a little bit. Uh, some of you are analyzers when it comes to conflict. When there's a problem, there's really no right answer, no wrong answers. There's just different sides. And so you look at it over here, and then you look at it over here, and then eventually you just kind of analyze it to death and never solve it. When it comes to conflict, some of you are annihilators. You are the conflict linebackers. And so whenever a problem comes your way, you're going to argue it into submission. You are going to conquer it no matter what. Whenever that conflict comes across your path, you're going to win. I must destroy you. That is your motto, okay? Now, when somebody does wrong, the Scriptures from God teach us right here that your role is not to ignore it, to enable it, to condemn it, or to try to destroy the person. But we are to try to restore with a gentle spirit. And a gentle spirit understands this. This isn't a game. When people come to you and they're hurting, this is life. And people matter to God. And so the goal is when we're trying to help somebody work through an issue in their life, the the goal is to help the person get right with God, perhaps get right with the people that they have hurt, the church, and in some cases, depending upon what's happened, get right with society as a whole. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, it's a good book. I I would encourage you to read it. He says that one of the key questions in dealing with any conflict is to ask, how can I handle this in such a way that God receives glory? How can I handle this in such a way that God receives glory? And understand, you may not be able to remove all the consequences from a person's life, but you can help the person who has done wrong break free and realize that God's grace can be extended to any heart that turns upon Him. Well, there's a second truth that's taught in the Scripture, and that is that we are not to be self-righteous. In verse 3, the Bible says, For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I have discovered that perhaps the two greatest enemies in restoration are pride and anger. The two greatest enemies in seeing people uh, grow closer to God and becoming more spiritual mature are pride and anger. Enemies of relationship, pride and anger. And anger. Whenever we've done something that we shouldn't do, 
pride causes us to minimize it. What? It wasn't that big of a deal. To try to make it smaller than what it really is. Or on the flip side, pride might cause me to think, well, I'm better than what I really am. Or, yeah, I've done some things that are wrong, but at least I'm not as bad as that guy. And in anger, we, we begin to become bitter people. Here's what you need to know about anger and bitterness. Anger usually takes place over an event. Something happens, and I get angry about it. Now, maybe you get angry for a few moments, and you calm down, and then you see it a little bit differently. But anger is more event-oriented. But whenever anger begins to grow roots, whenever it moves in, it pulls up the U-Haul truck, and it moves into your life, anger begins to morph into bitterness. And instead of just being angry over a situation, you become a bitter person. And every person that you talk to, every situation that you enter into, that bitterness just goes with you. Pride and anger are enemies to restoration. And if we are going to break free from our past, then pride has to be replaced with humility. And anger has to be replaced with forgiveness. We're going to talk next week about what is forgiveness and what is biblical forgiveness and what does that really look like. The third thing is that the passage teaches us is that we are to live the life that God has given you. Live the life that God has given you. In verse 4, the Scriptures say, but each person should examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in himself alone and not in respect to someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. If I could give you one thing, one thing that would drastically eliminate worry, envy, gossip, and frustration, even anger in your life, and it would give you more time, would you do this one thing? Would you? I sound like a late-night infomercial, don't I? If I could give you one thing that would drastically eliminate worry, envy, gossip, frustration, and anger, would you do it? How much would you pay? Three easy, but anyway, I'll move on. Here's what I'm talking about. If you will live the life that God has given you and not try to be living other people's lives, it would free up so much time in your life. It would drain you of so much worry and envy and gossip, frustration and anger. You can't live someone else's life. And that applies to so many areas of our life. When envy becomes a part of who we are, when we begin coveting things that have not been given to us, instead of living our own life, we spend all of our energies trying to live somebody else's life. And this is so easy to get caught up in. You look at somebody else and you think, oh man, I sure, I sure like their family. Look at their kids. Look at how they act. And look at, look at them. They're just good kids. And then there's my kids, you know. Uh, I want them, you know. Can I trade? You know, or are you like, man, I, I wish I had their bank account. Or, man, I, I, I wish I had their job. I wish I, I wish I had his personality. And it's really easy to get caught up in envy and start trying to live somebody else's life instead of living your own life. You must learn to find joy in life as it is rather than always waiting for life to become what you think it should be. My dad taught me this as I was growing up. 
He used to always say, son, take life for what it is and not for what it should be. Now, whenever I was a teenager, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to take what life is and turn it into what it should be. You know, I'm going to I'm going to make it all different. My dad had come from a very rough childhood, so he had had to learn that over the years. And as I continued living, I, I began to discover that, you know, there's so many things in life that you have no control over, and you can spend all your days worrying about these things that you have no influence over. God has not placed them within your realm of authority, and those things can tie you up in knots. You can spend all your years waiting for life to become what you think it should be instead of living the life that is right in front of you. Because if you take time to examine who God has made you to be, if you take time to examine the opportunities that He has brought across your path, you will discover very shortly that your life is full of abundant blessing and abundant opportunity to be used in glory for the Lord. Now, this passage talks a lot about helping others. And whenever you're trying to help somebody break free from their past, you need to pray for people. I think sometimes as Christians, we, we kind of think that's the last thing we can do for people. The first thing you can do for people is show them that you care by praying for them. Whenever people are talking to you, listen to them. Try to speak wisdom. Try to speak from Scripture and not just from personal opinion. And look for those areas where you are able to help. But as you're trying to help people along through life's journey, there is something that you just have to come to grips with, and that is that you cannot live another person's life for them. Moms and dads, one of the greatest quotes that Fletch has is, you can't be the Holy Spirit for your children. You can't be the Holy Spirit for your children. And if you're trying to spend all your days living somebody else's life for them, You'll never live your own life. The Bible says, carry your own life. Enjoy the goodness that is in the life that God has given you. And then a fourth thought in the passage. Rest in God's sovereignty. We look at the passage there in verse 7. We see a familiar scripture, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, he'll also reap. Because the one who sows to the flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. That term flesh there within Scripture, it's talking about earthly, materialistic, those things which are of the here and now. And the one who spends all of his energies sowing to those things which are fleshly will reap the deterioration or the corruption that's from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit, capital S, so you're sowing to the Holy Spirit, will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So we must not get tired of doing good for we will reap at the proper time if we do not give up. I also want you to notice there in verse 8 that it says that we will reap eternal life from the Spirit. The passage is about God's sovereignty, about His control, about His abilities to bring matters to His conclusion. Now, when it comes to God's sovereignty, there are two directions through which we understand this. And I find that a lot of discussions that people have about the Bible and about God deal with the sovereignty of God. The first perspective that we understand the sovereignty of God from, or 
is the heavenly side. This is the side as God is looking down on us. Normally, whenever we teach about the sovereignty of God in a sermon or in a life group, we're teaching about it from the heavenly side, from God's perspective. As you think about God up in heaven looking down at his creation, there are no worries. There's no anxiety. He's not up there going, I didn't know that was going to happen. But God's sovereignty from a heavenly perspective, he's in complete control. And the events of history are moving in a divine direction. So we understand sovereignty from God looking down, but we also understand sovereignty from us looking up, what I call the earthly side of sovereignty. And so from the earthly side over here, we're taught and we read in Scripture that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, that He's in control. But from our earthly side, there's a lot of questions. I don't understand this. I don't get this. There's injustice in this world. There's areas of life where I've messed up, and there's areas of my life where I've been hurt because other people have done things that are wrong. So we teach sovereignty from the heavenly side, but we wrestle with it from the earthly side. So here's some thoughts on this subject. I don't understand God's sovereignty. I don't understand all that there is about it. I believe in it, but I don't understand it. Be careful, because sometimes within our Christian verbiage, we fall into cliches. Something bad will happen to somebody, and we'll say, well, well, one day we will know. There's a reason for everything, and that at times can be comforting, but I've also seen that often here on this earth, that day never comes. Bad things will happen, and people will live their entire life and go, I, I still don't understand why that happened. I still don't understand it all. And we also have to realize that even though we embrace God's sovereignty, that until Christ comes again, the Scriptures teach us that there will be injustice and suffering in this world, that evil is real. And as you unpack sovereignty, make sure that you do not minimize evil. There's a major world religion that says evil does not truly exist. It is but a mere illusion to make you stronger. And some Christians subtly fall into that trap where they say that sin or evil are not real, but they are merely God's instruments to make you stronger. There is such thing as evil, injustice, and until Christ comes again, there will be suffering in this world. But... The hope of Christianity is found in our belief that God knows all things, God is in control of all things, and God is leading all things to His conclusions. And from that sovereignty, God has called you to Himself. He has justified you, pronouncing you innocent even though you are guilty, and He has glorified you in spite of you. At the foundation of Christianity, it is not about your ability to be good enough, but it is about God's greatness and the extension of His grace through Christ. Christianity is the only major faith grounded in in grace. And so the key to resting in God's sovereignty is to extend the lens through which you understand life. If you understand life merely as the hundred years or so that you're going to live, you're going to frequently be frustrated. 
But when you extend that lens to the eternal, and that's why I told you to pay attention that, that the passage says that we reap eternal life from the Spirit. Because whenever you extend your lens and you understand that God is not just a God of a century or a generation, that God is a God of eternity, then you can rest in that. And rest in, rest in eternity rather than being the clingy girlfriend of the here and now. In October of 2010, Texas entered into a severe drought. Now, in our suburban lifestyles, he probably didn't think a whole lot about it. Turn on the sink, and there's water. But without water, everything dies. It starts with your lawn. And eventually, if you don't have water, you die. It got so bad last summer, Lake Travis, the big lake in Austin, it was so low that thousands of people in Austin were gathering together to pray for rain. Now, you may have noticed, uh, we've gotten a little rain of late. So much so that now we actually have floods. And certainly our prayers today go out to those that uh, are affected by those floods. Well, as I was driving around this week and and looking at the damage from the floods and and just, you know, like all of you going, wow, I can't believe how high that that water is, I I was reminded of a line from the 23rd Psalm. You know the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, he leadeth me beside. He restoreth my soul, and he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now picture the imagery. God sets a fine table before you, full of abundant food and blessing, even as your enemies are surrounding you. Thou anointest my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. So surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God doesn't desire for you to live as a victim to your past. God desires to fill the cup of your soul with the grace of His Holy Spirit. And not merely to your cup's capacity. No, God floods the cup of your soul. And in so doing, the living water of the Holy Spirit not only restores your heart, but it overflows and saturates every area of your life. In ancient times, when you were the guest in a home, the way in which you knew that you were welcome to continue to to remain and eat was that the host would continue to fill your cup. Whenever the host quit filling your cup, it was time for you to go home. As long as the cup overflowed, 
you remained at the table. And the psalmist teaches us that when we abide and rest in the presence of God, when we find our hope and our strength in Him, our cup overflows. Because He desires for you to dwell at His table, not just for today, but forever. And I pray that goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please? As we come to a time of commitment, the musicians are going to come and lead us in a hymn. I'll be here at the front. If I may pray with you about anything, it's always my delight to do so. If you have questions about what it means to become a Christian, I would love to help you answer those questions and would love to help you uh, make that decision in your own life. What we saw Charles and Cade celebrate, the, the believing in Christ today, can be something that takes place in your own life as well. I'll be here at the front during this song. I'll be around as well after the service, and I would love to talk to you if you have questions about the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. And I thank you, Lord, for these truths that we've seen uh, nestled in Scripture today. And I pray, Lord, that it may, the truths may not just be something that we looked at for an hour and then went on with our lives, but I pray that what we saw today might take root in our lives and might uh, be seen for years to come. My heart especially is turned towards our students today, many of them at a crossroads point in life. I know that their families are overflowing with pride today. And I pray, Lord, that they might love you, love the one and others that you bring into their life, and that they might love others. I pray, Lord, that we might walk in wisdom. Pray, Lord, that we might rest in sovereignty, trust in grace. Lord, I pray for the individual that comes in here today haunted by the past, that your Holy Spirit will free them today, that they will break free to walk in your love. Help us, Lord, to love others as you have loved us. In Jesus' name.